Today's sermon comes from Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who sink him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So Friday morning, I had a morning probably like you all have had. I was walking out the door to sneak away for just a couple hours. And as I'm walking out the door, Jen looks at me and goes, are you okay? And I said, nope. (laughs) And then she goes, do you want to talk about it? And I said, nope. And then I just kept on walking. And uh, you know what the, the peculiar part of that is? I had slept 10 hours the night before, which is amazing. So I wasn't necessarily tired or sleep deprived. But what was going on is... I had pent up inside of me this tremendous amount of frustration, anxiety, despair, anger, like just the swirl of emotions. Um, And what it settled to was a deep type of restlessness that was in my soul. What's funny is when you think about the scriptures, we often, especially in a church like ours, we talk about depravity a lot. And when we say depravity, we usually come to mean moral depravity. We usually come to mean... um, you know, our sin and our inability to do what's right and our ability or propensity to do what's wrong. But the way the scriptures describe depravity is total depravity, not just moral depravity. Total depravity is this, is spiritual brokenness, spiritual depravity. It's emotional depravity. It's uh, physical depravity. It's chemistry. It's biological depravity. The whole of who we are is broken. And so as I was walking out the door on Friday morning, what I was living with was emotional depravity. I was living with this inability to, uh, even though everything was well in our home, even though our circumstances were at peace, I had the inability to recognize that peace. There was a peacelessness down in my soul. And so this morning, it's interesting, we're going to come to a text about the king of glory, but the question that we're going to answer together is, what's the position of man? I'll say that to you again. The question we're going to answer this morning is, who are you and what is your position in the world? So hopefully with the intro, I don't have to convince you of the reality of total depravity. If, if you've ever experienced anything like what I just said, you know that we li- we're broken people living in a broken world, that the mess of our person, the mess of our soul isn't just the wrong things that we do, but there's just a, there's a disconnect between who we are and, and the way that we were made If I have to convince you of that, come see me afterwards and I'll point you towards a counselor or an elder and they'll they'll convince you of it. Y'all laugh, that's the point where you laugh. Yeah, thank you, yes. Um, But the text, Psalm 24 opens up with um, a truth that points to both the reason for our depravity and also our recourse for it. Turn to verses one and two. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. 
See, it says that this planet, our, the land that we live on, but also the culture, the inhabited earth, the institutions that we have, the universities that we're educated in, the churches that we gather in, the governments that we have, the whole of that doesn't just belong to the Lord, but it's to him. And then it goes on further to say, everybody who dwells in it, who makes their home inside this land or inside this inhabited world, that all of us are to Yahweh. What that, what that means that it's his isn't just ownership. It's not just that the final bill is his or the right to do what he wants with it is his, but it actually means that it was designed by him for a specific purpose and that it's towards his person. It means it's, it's toward him, not just owned by him. I'll give you a little bit of an example. Um, we've recently, uh, in the last year, we bought a new home. And home ownership is one of those uh, interesting seasons you go through in life. There's this tremendous amount of right that you have, but there's also an incredible amount of responsibility. Everybody who's made a repair this, this, uh, this year is going like, oh man, you're so right. Um, and the difference between when you've rented and when you own a home is pretty tremendous. When you rent a home, your rights aren't very high, but neither is your accountability, your liability. You're just sort of transient. And then there's even a difference between those of us who own our home and those of us who've paid it off, that somebody else has a say to my home still because I have a mortgage, right? There's those of us who've paid it off. It's ours to do with what we want, uh, but the accountability is entirely on ours. But listen, that is not the way that the scriptures describe the Lord's ownership of you and the world and everything that dwells in it. This is how it describes it. My, uh, growing up, my parents decided to build their own house. And here's the thing. My dad didn't just design every single detail of, you know, when you go to like a custom home builder and you say, I want the kitchen over there and I want that wall knocked down. If you could put a second store, that'd be good my dad endeavored to actually build the house with his own hands, like take the beams and set them on the two by fours. And then y'all know what radiant heating is on floors? It's those warm floors when you live up north. There's these, uh, pipe, these tubes that run under the floor that pump hot water through the floor and it makes the floor warm. See, my dad didn't just know that the floors were warm and he didn't even just know that there was tubes running underneath it that made it warm. My dad's hand had screwed the actual tube into the place where the hot water goes. See, the way the scriptures describe Yahweh's ownership of you and our world and our inhabitation is like the way that my dad built the house with his own two hands. Yahweh made you and he made you for himself for a very, very, very specific reason, not just in your own little world, but all of humanity, all of this cosmos is his, which leads us to the problem. That house that my dad built, it was, um, if y'all have ever been up on the Appalachian Trail before, it was a cabin up on the top, sort of two thirds of the way down the hill, overlooking the city of Charleston, West Virginia. And um, imagine if that house had decided, or as a cabin, had decided that it wanted to be a coastal home out here at the beach and that it didn't like the, the, the exact degree that it faced west and decided that it wanted to face east, or that it didn't like its position among the other houses. And then imagine if somehow, by some crazy world, that house was able to pick itself up and turn itself around 
Imagine if that house tried to walk down here to Jacksonville, Florida and set up shop on the beach. It's a weird analogy, but here's what would happen. The boards would come loose. It would come off of its foundation. Houses can't walk to Jacksonville, Florida. See, that's the problem with our life. The reason that I woke up on Friday morning, even though I'm on this side of union with Christ, I woke up disconnected. I woke up unable to recognize peace is this, is in our life, we attempt independence. Every single one of us has been designed by Yahweh. We've been put there for Christ, by Christ, but we have our own plan for our lives. And we didn't start that on our own. We got it from our parents. Uh, We talk about this pretty much every week, but it started with the very first humans, that they decided that they wanted life on on their own terms. And then we've attempted the same things for ourselves. Let me give you a couple of examples. We decide that there's a certain lifestyle we want. So we pursue money to get it. And so we pursue careers to get that money. And then in our pursuit of our career, certain things happen that cause our uh, life to come unwound. And then same thing with children. We decide we want a family to be in a certain way. And so we pursue having children and then we get those children. And then we want to form those children in our own image. And in the process of doing that, both their life and our life, Come unwound. See, the reason that our life is disconnected from the way it was intended to be is this, and it's good news. It's that you were designed. You didn't just happen. Somebody made you and made you for a purpose. And so that leads us to also our hope. What's the recourse that's in verses one and two? It's this. You're not totally abandoned. If you can make it back to the one who made you, there's one who can also remake you. That you're not just left trying to figure out how were you originally designed, but there's someone who knows the way your life is supposed to work, that knows the way this world is supposed to work. And the text is really clear. That person is Yahweh. That person is the Lord. So it leads us uh, to, the, to our second question, which is this. How can we come to Yahweh? How is it that we can make our way back to the Lord and find mercy? How do we get access to Yahweh? And that's the question verses three uh, through six are answering. Verse three says it directly. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? You know, the psalmist is, uh, if y'all remember the early part of the Old Testament, the psalmist is looking back to the story of uh, Israel coming up out of Egypt. If y'all know the book of Exodus, And what happens is for well over 400 years, they've been physical slaves in Egypt. They've been um, asked to produce more and more with less and less. I remember the story, their babies are left exposed to the elements to be killed. Other people decide when they're allowed to have children and what those children do. And there's literally no reprieve. They do this seven days a week, around and around and around the clock. And then one day the Lord shows up and through a tremendous, uh, you all know the 10 plagues, but through, through 10 incredible wonders, ultimately culminating in the death of the firstborn, the Lord takes the nation of Israel and brings them up out of Egypt. And then they go across the Red Sea, they end up in the wilderness, and then they get to this mountain called Sinai. That's what the psalmist has in view. And what happened at Sinai is this, the whole nation was now in the middle of the wilderness around the bottom of a mountain. And then the Lord had promised that he would come down on the mountain. And so the mountain filled up with fire 
and only one person was allowed to come up. Y'all remember this? Moses goes up. And at the top, Moses goes up and he receives from the Lord the terms of their relationship. All right, what am I talking about? What is Kevin talking about? What the psalmist is saying here is he's acknowledging there's a disconnect between our access to Yahweh, our access to the Lord. And the question remains, who's able to go up to the Lord? Who is it that can go from our broken situation and actually find mercy, find help? Who is it that can mediate for us? And in doing it, he lays out four criteria. Read verses four, uh, yeah, four with me. Here's the one who can stand in the personal presence of God. He who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and he who does not swear deceitfully. This is the terms of access to the Lord. The terms of relationship to the Lord are this. You have to never have done harm with these. And by hands, it means you've never actually have brought about harm in the world. And it also means that not only have you never actually brought about harm, but you've never intended harm in your will, that you've never actually woken up and had a malicious thought towards someone. And then it goes further beyond just our innocence to our desires. It says that the the person who can come into the presence of God is one who's never had a wrong desire, that you've never woken up longing for something different than what you were made for. And that also in your pursuit of those desires, you've also never manipulated anybody before. You've only ever pursued them honestly. Everybody feeling excluded from that? There is not a single person in this room, myself included, who meets up to those four criteria. You do not, in all of your depravity, in all of your the brokenness of your life on your own merits, you do not have access to the Lord. The one who made you on your own terms, you do not have access to, which should be sufficiently uh, depressing except for the really good news. Here's the news. There's one who met all four of these criteria. And I'm just gonna walk you through the person and the work of Jesus. It says, he who has clean hands, Do you remember when Jesus came and he held children in his hands? And that when he met lepers and when he met blind, what did he do with his hands? That Jesus healed the people around him with his hands. Do you remember when the question of his will came about, the the pureness of Jesus's heart? When he's in the bottom of the pit in Gethsemane, he begs the father, let the cup pass. Nevertheless, your will be done not mine. That Jesus was absolutely clean and pure in his will. But then also when it, come, when it came to his desires, it said that he came not to do his own will, but his father's will. That he came not to pursue his own glory, but his father's glory. That the desire of Jesus was absolutely what was intended for humanity. And then if you remember the temptations of Jesus, that Satan brought him up to the top of the temple and invited him to throw himself off of it so that the angels would catch him, so that he would demonstrate to people who he was. 
And what did he say? He said, no, not going to do it. That Jesus, in his pursuit of glorifying God in his own person, was unwilling to do it manipulatively. Do you remember when the nations came to try to force him to be king? And he did that weird magic trick where he slid away. But Jesus was entirely unwilling to do God's will on his own terms. So here's the good news of that. On our own merits, we live as broken people in a broken world and without access to the one who can help us. And that's because none of the four criteria for coming to him, we, can, we can't even meet one of them. But Jesus in his person perfectly met all four of them. What does that mean to us? Well, it means this. That when Jesus came, he was already righteous. He was already the beginning of holiness. He was the king of heaven. But he exposed himself to humiliation. What that means is that the king of heaven left all of his rights in heaven, all of his cleanness, and submitted himself to being a human. And you know what, this, this blew me away this week. You know, the expectation of perfect, perpetual, personal obedience was put on Jesus when he became a human. That Jesus was, had to submit to somebody else's will. See, what happened is when Jesus came, he secured human righteousness. And then the text goes on to say in verse five, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That Jesus secured perfect human righteousness. But do you remember what happened after he died? My man got up out of the grave. That Jesus received from the Lord salvation. How's that apply to you? Here's the sweet promise of the gospel. In all of your mess, in all of my emotional broken, my inability to be at peace when I'm walking out of the door on Friday morning is this. Jesus offers to you righteousness, to you. And he offers to you resurrection, to you. There is a, this might be a soapbox and you guys will just advance me some forgiveness, uh, but I'm gonna do it anyways. There is a couple of religions masquerading around, not just our church, but just North America, masquerading around our culture uh, as Christianity right now. I'm gonna walk you through three of them. The first one is this, um, good people go to heaven. That's complete nonsense. And the reason it's complete nonsense is this. None of us are good. We just walked through those four criteria. And you know what else? Goodness isn't the measure for coming to the Lord. Righteousness and innocence is the measure of whether you have access. The second one is God just wants to help you be your best self. Also nonsense. The natural part of you that's in rebellion to him, he wants to see dead. And then what he wants to do is take the real you, the one that he made and raise it from the dead. He doesn't want to make you into your best current image, but to restore you to the image of Christ. The third one is everything happens for a reason. Okay, not total nonsense, kind of true. But when we say that, what we mean is all this, we never mean that about good stuff. Whoever hit the lottery and said, yeah, everything happens for a reason, you know, or I got, just got a promotion, everything happens for a reason. We mean it when bad stuff happens. We mean it when 
we break a bone or when we lose a loved one or when we go through hard stuff or when our dishwasher breaks or our, you know, everything happens for a reason. And by that, what we mean is there's this inherent blessing inside the hard stuff that if we just look hard enough, we would see it. Now look, Jesus takes everything that happens to you, all the hard stuff, and the scriptures say he works it together to bring about your good. But the overwhelming majority of the hard stuff is there because of sin and brokenness. That God's not trying to deceive you or manipulate you by sending you a good gift wrapped in the wrapper of a bad gift, but he's more than willing to take the curse and the bad stuff that happens and use it to form you into the image of Jesus and wed you to him. See, here's the good news that I want you to hear this morning. Those three things are absolutely false. But the amazing news of Psalm 24 is this, is that you are righteous, but it's not your righteousness. That you're able to come in the, in the midst of all of the pain and despair and anxiety and frustration and anger, all of the things that you experience on an hour-to-hour, day-to-day basis, you are able to come to Yahweh because of this. You are in possession of Christ's righteousness. He didn't just take your bad deeds, clean them up, and now somehow make them good deeds. He took all of your bad stuff on himself and then took his perfect obedience and handed it to you. So when Jesus got baptized, he was baptized for you. That when Jesus healed the leper, he healed him for you. That when Jesus submitted to the Father's will in Gethsemane, he did it for you. That when the Father looks at you, it's not just a parlor trick where it's like you're dirty underneath and he sees Jesus. You are actually standing in possession of righteousness but it's righteousness that you couldn't earn on your own. It's the righteousness of God himself in human flesh. It is the righteousness of Christ. You're also, when you come to him, you are in possession of absolute innocence. That when Jesus, when the, the, the band came to arrest him and Peter pulled out the sword and chopped off the dude's ear and Jesus said, what are you doing? Put the sword back in your sheath. Shall I not do my father's will? That Jesus had the right and the potential at the moment to destroy everything. And he didn't. Jesus was absolutely innocent. That the scriptures say that because of the work of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit applying the work of Christ to you, that you have Jesus's innocence. Here's what that means. The reason those three things we just walked through are total nonsense is this. You don't come to Yahweh on your own merits. You don't come to the one who made you on your own merits. And the reason that's tremendous news is because you come to the Lord on the merits of Christ. And that work is finished work. And you can't do better work than Christ did. So how should we respond? This morning, I just walked you pretty quickly through the problem of not just our moral sin, but our total depravity. And then the consequence comes from our brokenness, our independence. And that you haven't offered a restoration, but it does not come through independence. It comes through dependence. You exchange what you have for the righteousness of Christ. You exchange your guilt for the innocence of Christ. 
So again, how do we respond? Well, verses seven through nine say this. There's this weird tension in the text where in three through six, there's a question to man about who can come up. And then all of a sudden you get to, as if the Lord is inside somewhere and you have to go to him. But then what happens? Y'all see that closely in verses seven to nine? It's now the Lord who's on the outside who's trying to come in. You see that? Here's the promise of the text. The promise is this. You who could not come up to the Lord on your own, if you will simply open yourself up to him, he will come to you. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right, I'll say amen. Amen. Here's the, the promise is this, is that if we would just open the gates of our lives to him, that the king of glory wouldn't stay up on the mountain, but would come down and enter in to our situation. There's this uh, interesting thing going on in the text where you have to slow down and ask yourself, what are gates? Y'all got the picture in your head? Gates. That in the Old Testament, the cities were walled that there was no way into the city except through the gate. So the gate would keep people out and it would allow people in, that it was this decision moment, that it was a point of access, that there wasn't just free coming and going. Then you also have to ask yourself, why would you have to ask for the gates to be open? We've got in our backyard, we've got, you know, everybody has a gate in their fence. We've got a little gate. And if it's open, I don't have to reach over and undo the latch. I just walk through it. It's just open. The reason you have to open or call for the gate to be open is because the gate's closed. Hope that's not super obvious, or it, may, it is super obvious, but I hope it's not offensive that I called it out. And do you know why cities would shut their gates? Cities would shut their gates when two things were going on, when the king was not at home because the king is the one who defended the city. And they would shut their gates when an army was marching toward that they weren't sure who it was because it's better to be safe than sorry. So here comes the offer in Psalm 24. And underneath the offer is this. It is the natural disposition of the human heart for the gates to be shut that it is the natural posture of the human heart to keep Jesus at bay, to keep him out there. And the reason is real simple. I'm the king of my life, not you. And also, I'm not really sure what your intent here is. So it feels a little risky to let you in to where I'm at. But here's the promise, is if we would just open up, Jesus would come in. So what does it look like to open our hearts to Jesus? Well, it's this. The two main ways, and it's, it's been kind of sweet, the, uh, the Beaches launch team, we've been going through some living and leading out of the gospel training. And what we talked about this past week was the two ways that we keep, uh, we keep Jesus at bay, two ways that we bar the gate are pretending and performing. That in pretending, we look at all the mess of our life and we act like it's, everything's fine. Anybody here ever looked at Instagram? Yes, yeah, I got a little chuckle. Y'all only chuckled a little because you know what I'm talking about. That what we do there is we pretend. We take the very best moment of our life that we can create and we post it 
so that it covers over all the junk. That what we do with Jesus is we act like it's not there. That when I'm ready to come to Jesus, you know what I do? I check my frustration at the door. I check my despair at the door, my anger at the door, or my fear at the door. Because I don't want the king of glory to see that stuff. The other thing that we do is we perform. That when the king of glory catches a glimpse of like, man, that's a messy kitchen. You know what I do? I work really, really hard to clean up my kitchen. Because I don't want Jesus to see the mess. That when I'm in the midst of rebellion, I act like, well, there's a good reason for it. Or when we interact with one another, I, I act like, well, I tell you all the good stuff I'm doing, but not all the terrible stuff that I'm doing. See, what it means to open up your heart, open up your gates to Jesus is to stop pretending and to stop performing. What it means to open up your heart to Jesus is to go ahead and tell him that you're frustrated, to tell him that you're angry, to tell him that you're in despair, to tell him that you're afraid. What it means to open up your heart with Jesus is to be honest with him. The question this morning is, what would our lives look like if we opened up to Jesus? What would our families and our communities and our congregations look like if we opened up to Jesus? What would happen if we took our frustration and our despair and our anxiety and our sin, all of our depravity, and we poured it out at the feet of King Jesus, what would happen if instead of running from him, we ran to him? You know what the promise of the text is this morning? If you will just pour it out at the feet of King Jesus, King Jesus will come in. And you know how you'll find him? A warrior. You will find King Jesus strong. You will find him mighty. And the text says you will find him mighty in battle. What that means is that Jesus isn't just a big bully. That your king sees your mess and wants you to let him into the mess. And you know what he'll do when he comes into the mess? King Jesus' record is this. He takes every single enemy you have ever had and he fights him for you and with you. We already saw it as we were talking about in the second point that when your estate was sin and misery, that Jesus shattered sin. That when all of humanity was under the curse of death, you know what Jesus did? Jesus killed death. There is not a single door in all of the cosmos that can resist the king of glory wanting to come in but he is kind and gentle enough to ask you, to invite you, to let him in. He's kind and gentle enough to not just kick the door open, but to want you to say, yes, come help me. He wants you to be part of it, but he's willing to do the work with you. And so here's what'll happen. If you will just pour out your despair, if you'll just pour out your fear, your anxiety or your frustration or your, your sin, the brokenness, that Jesus will come in and hand you his own righteousness. And he will also hand you his own resurrection. He'll look despair in the face and say, you know, there's a day coming when there's going to be a new earth and you'll have a new body. That he'll look at your anxiety and say, don't you know that I intercede for you and that everything works together for your good and I'm the God who's in the heavens and I do all that I please. You know, he'll look at your fear and say, 
there's nothing that can get to you that doesn't pass through me first. That he'll look at your sin and say, you know, it's already dealt with. That he'll look at your absence of righteousness, all the, all the missed decisions, the, the good things that you didn't do. And he'll say, you remember my healing of the leper? It's yours. He'll look at all the times that you feel guilt and shame over not doing what you should have done. And he'll say, do you remember when I obeyed my father all the way to death? Here, it's yours. That if you would just come to Jesus rather than turning and running from him, if you would turn toward him and run toward him and go ahead and pour out your depravity, pour out your emotions, pour out your frustration, what you'll find is that King Jesus will come in and he will fight for you and he will bring righteousness and he will bring salvation. So what I wanted you to hear this morning is this, is the position of man is we're in a mess. But the position of man is also this. You are the beloved of God in Christ. And the position of man is this, is that rather than running from him, the invitation is for you to open to him. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing you experienced that he's not already aware of. And that's not like a Santa Claus kind of thing. It means this. It means the sin that you have that you're aware of there's other sin you have that you're not aware of. Y'all know that? Like as you go along in Christ, you go, man, I didn't, I'm glad I didn't know that 10 years ago. You know, when Jesus died for you, he, wasn't, he didn't just die for the stuff you're aware of. He was already aware of the whole entire mess. And it says that he reconciled you to God. See, the point of the text is this. The position of man is that our salvation belongs to the King of glory, to King Jesus. And the, the position of man is blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Jesus, you are King and you are refuge. Lord, as we come to texts like Psalm 24, we're reminded that we don't have our own merit, that all the merit we have is your merit. And the good news of that is that your merit is better than our merit. You didn't just strip us of what we have and leave us naked, but you clothed us in better garments than we could have ever had. That you, God himself, became human and accomplished human righteousness, that you were absolutely innocent and that you give us your innocence and your righteousness. And Jesus, we are waiting for your return. That's who the church is. We're people who are waiting. And so we pray as we wait that you would remind us of your resurrection, that you would remind us of the new heavens and the new earth. And more than that, that you would remind us of the fact that there is coming a day where you won't just dwell in us, but we will see you face to face. And so between now and then, we pray that you would keep us in yourself. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.